Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. We have another Show Us Your Portfolio episode, and this time it's with Ryan Kruger, founder of Freedom Day Solutions. We talked to Ryan about how he views his personal portfolio and long-term objectives, and the four different types of buckets his assets fall into. Safe, sacred, speculative, and grindex, or what makes you happy and gives you purpose. Other topics include his approach to dividend growth investing and investing in things outside his circle of competence as a way to learn and grow. Thanks so much for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Freedom Day Solutions' Ryan Kruger. Ryan, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. We wanted to have you on because we're doing a series on the podcast called Show Us Your Portfolio, where we talk to individuals like yourself and other experts about how they go about managing their own personal portfolios and, and hopefully more importantly, what investors can learn from those who have you know, taken the time to think about their portfolios, their goals, their investments, and you know, how they're going to get to what they want to achieve. Um, in life and later in life. Um, I think the one thing with investing is there's multiple ways to be successful. And so I think that's what these hopefully podcasts show is that there's very different styles and methods of investing. And it's kind of finding the strategies or strategies that works best for you and that, that you know, you can stick with. So with that, having smart, successful, long-term thinkers like yourself and talking to you about how you're, you know, handling your portfolio and building your wealth is something that, um, you know, is, is really great. And we appreciate you coming on and, you know, sharing that wisdom with us. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I think it's, it, it, I've always said, if you have one question to ask anybody in this business, this is it. So the fact that you're sharing with some really bright minds that I've enjoyed listening to all of them. So I'm happy to contribute anything. Um, and I'm a total open book. So let's start sort of at a very high level with you. And I'm sure you uh, start here with your clients as well. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing. But when you think about, you know, your biggest long-term goals, um, and what you're trying to achieve with your investment portfolio, how would you sort of capture that? Well, I'm a little bit of an odd bird, um, and you'll find out right off of this question. Uh, my only stated goal um, is to never finish. So the closest thing, and I think of this more as a, a playbook that is evolving, not just the business, investing, but my life, so it's all intertwined, than a list of goals that I would find fairly one-dimensional and boring. Um, the greatest trade I ever made in my life was when I realized that if I tried to eliminate any expectations and only looked for things to appreciate, which kind of leads to why I don't have a goal. My, my own, the closest thing to a goal would be working very hard and then playing just as hard. And I learned that. I, I've, I've, I said in the, um, the book we were just talking about, the greatest trick I think the devil ever played on investors is making them think it's the investment part that matters most. I have found and I've watched from folks that I'm privileged to work for, and I just want to be one of these happiest guys that I've studied, that it's actually the work part that matters more. So I don't focus at all on any end goal, and my goal is never to retire, frankly. Well, that kind of takes the wind out of the sails on my next question, because I was going to ask you <laughs> what you think you'd like to do, do in retirement. But uh, 
I guess that is, is continue, continue the race, continue winning, continue working, continue adding value as best you can. Well, we just have, I'll, I'll put the wins right back in those sales. If I'm, if I'm the whole purpose is actually just that I don't want to, you know, walk out the door one day to do nothing. I want to be able to afford to do anything. So what we, we refer to that as our grindexing around here, um, where you find a bigger purpose, whether that be more work because you love your craft and lean into it or want to give more. And that is a very specific goal. It's just not a list or a finish line. So, um, you know, the idea for me with grindexing is the best way to last the longest is in memory banks of other people, which can multiply long after you're gone. So that to me is a lot more exciting than playing golf with a friend. So yeah, I've, I have some big ideas as I keep going and I've just watched, I, I've, I've been in a unusual position of watching folks with the same investments that are wildly happier than others and studied them. Um, and it was work and purpose and, and a love of a craft. I want to talk about your actual investment allocation because you actually sent us a very cool uh, pie chart that we'll put in the video. But before we do that, I want to talk about the first time we had you on, we talked about this concept of a freedom day that you use with your clients. And I was just wondering if you could talk about what that is and also how you do you apply that at all to what you're doing with your own portfolio? Yeah. So one of my goals when I escaped from Wall Street was with what I had learned and all the complexity and that playbook that I talked about that I use and share. I mean, I, anything that um, that, that I'm doing for folks, I'm, I'm not, I'm not recommending it. I'm believing I'm doing it myself. So what I learned was actually eliminating pages of that playbook. So the idea of a freedom day can come at any age. It's not a retirement asset number. Um, and it really has more to do with the inputs of, as I said, you know, who and where you're going to be, you know, you divide the number across that expense line and you can to me the way to ag aggressively invest is you can dramatically speed up when you can walk out the door and not work anymore by how you're living rather than how the market's doing um, so freedom day to me is when incoming free cash flow i affectionately call that mailbox money which we can talk about the components as we go exceeds your annual expenses with a huge contingency bucket of cash on the side so that you literally have never any worries and you're not retiring and walking away from something you're running towards wanting to do something and the ability to afford anything that is you sent us this uh this pie chart and it was actually very cool because we typically when we get pie charts for this it's something like bonds and stocks and alternatives and you know what we got from you was safe sacred speculative and grindexed as the four different things and so before we talk about those individually i'm wondering if you could just talk about where you came up with that framework because it's, it's a really interesting framework well i found that the holy grail of investing is deeply informed simplicity and i did not start here i don't take i learned by process of elimination so all these different allocations that i kept seeing when i was inside of the belly of the beast of the largest brokerage firm and bank on wall street i not only learned that there was a whole lot of time and money and expenses wasted but more importantly i saw normal people that I affectionately refer to as the merely wealthy in my blog is the secrets of the merely wealthy of what I've learned from them. They were confused at best and completely disinterested or dysfunctional with, with investments as a result of that complexity. Um, so to me, everything should be boiled down to it. Doesn't, this doesn't mean anybody has to agree with how their investments would be bucketed here like mine. 
But safe to me is just that. It's not an exotic form of income or yield and stretching for it. Some people would classify that as a conservative and fixed income and bonds and all these different sizes. To me, safe means very, very safe. So cash, risk-free bonds, tax-free municipal bonds, AAA rated. Um, sacred means something that is paying you while you sleep in the form of equities, primarily for me, rising dividends. I've learned of all the different ways to measure and, and stuff that you and that you and I like talking about all the time, different ways to slice up the market. The, the metric that I found over 200 years most consistent was the only one that was real and you could hold in your hand was a dividend. So sacred to me means when everybody else is arguing and debating about the markets, what can pay you while you sleep and let them worry. And so that would be very, very difficult to pry out of my hands when that mailbox mass, that incoming yield is considerably higher than an inflation rate or safe withdrawal rate, which I don't believe in, that free cash flow, that's a sacred investment to me. And if you've got those two that provide the combined mailbox money for your Freedom Day, then all of a sudden the speculative bucket, which most people would term any of their at-risk investments in a variety of ways, instead of debating or saying, are they good or bad, should you buy or sell them, you could literally afford to risk 100% of whatever's left with zero worry. And no matter what that's in, venture capital, private, real estate, all of that stuff now, you have an unbelievably unusual advantage versus the rest of the field because you are the only one not using levered or worried money that will be forced to sell at some point, which is the result of all of these bad periods and any crashes. Never the market. It's always scared money or levered money no matter what the underlying investment is that dooms people. And I, I just wanted to separate those, which unlocks the peace of mind. Yeah, I would think, you know, if like a traditional financial planner looking at kind of this would say like someone of your age, you know, 40% and safe is a lot. But I think that comes back to, it comes back to your peace of mind idea, right? You know, if you, if you have the peace of mind of that, then you can do some, some more aggressive things in the other part of the portfolio. Is that how you think about it? Well, I think hidden in your question right there, is an entire industry with a conflict of interest that they have to beat on their chest and make this confusing or else why should they get paid? I could, we could do a whole podcast on that. That's what I learned. I, I think that's the secret hiding in plain sight, that, that, that there's a reason this isn't simpler and more people and some of these best kept secrets are hiding in plain sight because there's an entire industry employed to make this confusing. Just a couple other ones on the on the safe part. Um, one of the things I noticed, and I was going to ask you about bonds, but you don't seem to have any traditional bonds in here. You seem to have tax-free munis in here. And I'm wondering just, is, is that a statement? I mean, a lot of people say the expected returns on bonds in general are really bad right now. Um, you know, maybe given your time frame, you don't want bonds. I mean, I'm just wondering if you could talk about why you chose that and you don't use maybe the more standard bonds. Well, safe to me is either risk-free treasuries or triple A rated munis. Um, those are very traditional to me. It's when you start stepping out and reaching for a little yield that gets folks in significant trouble. Some folks have more risk in their fixed income portfolio than they do in their stocks. Um, for me, I don't have an expected return. It's not a macro call. Um, I believe in you know the simplest way I describe it, whether it be kids at my supper table or we have three generations of families that we work for, five over triple digits in age now, I always start and end with the same conversation. If all we do is bank ourselves and remove as many middle layers as we can and go buy the same bonds that the bank is buying and then giving you 0.04% in your savings account, let's just go buy that 3 or 4% bond, collect it all, and 
I don't know any simpler formula for safe money out there. And with everybody, and, and tax-free bonds, the, the notion of it's just reserved for the rich, I find anybody in any tax bracket, especially going forward, will benefit tremendously from tax-free bonds. 90%, I would say, of all of our friends, no matter which side of the aisle they're on, closer to 100, if they're being honest, would say they'd rather pay fewer taxes. And yet, only a handful, single-digit percentages, own individual tax-free bonds in their own name. I'm glad to be one of them. It's simple, and I cut out all the middle layers. And so I don't look at it as an investment. I just look at it as my safe money. And how do you think about real estate? I mean, some people might classify real estate like in a riskier bucket. Um, what types of real estate are you talking about there? And uh, how do you think about that in terms of being a safe investment? Kind of both ends of the spectrum. Uh, and and you know, the key here for me anyways, as you'll see throughout, is balance. So safest, you know, I don't view my home as an investment. Most folks would, and it's a biggest part or it's a large percentage of their net worth. I don't expect to make a nickel on it. If I'm any good at any analysis, I can't help but make good investments. I wanna be in the right part of town. I wanna to do the right thing um, with my money, but really all I care about is my family there. So that's a large, that, that real estate is very different. I don't consider an investment to the other end of this spectrum of simple mailbox money producing rental real estate. Um, I view that as you know sacred money. Um, I think some folks have too much of that. They think it's easy, and then as they go, there's a lot of wear and tear and maintenance and hidden costs. Um, so I think there's a variety of different real estate investments. I'm not a real estate expert, um, but I have and own um, dirt, and I believe in it, um, in, in balance and without leverage. One of the, uh, the things I like to ask in this, and I think you have this in common with us, is you also are an owner of a business in this industry. And, you know, one of the challenges I think about owning a business in this industry is, you know, we have a lot of beta to the industry in general or a lot of beta to the stock market. So, you know, if, if the market's going up, the value of the business is going up, the income might be going up and, and the same way on the downside. And I'm wondering when, when you think about this framework, does that at all factor into this? Do you think like, all right, I, I own this business in the investment industry, so I need to be lower risk in my portfolio or does it not factor in at all? It, it probably should, and it makes great sense <laughs> to think of it that way. Um, my mindset of zero expectations and appreciation, as soft and cuddly as that sounds, it also requires a tremendous amount of grit. So the only way I know how to answer that question is I literally wake up every day thinking I have to be rehired, no matter what the market. So I think I have extreme risk in the business, even though we have three generations of families and an extraordinarily loyal group of families that we work for. Um, but yeah, I, I want to make sure no different than what I recommend them doing with them. They need to have money completely separate. I probably have more in safe money than any active equity manager you've talked to. And it's not because I'm worried about the market. I just believe in making sure that people counting on you can sleep at night. Yeah, even if the business is not going into your framework, I mean, the end result certainly takes into consideration because you do have a bunch of money, you know, in your safe bucket. So, you know, the, the end result certainly takes into account probably the fact that you, you do have that exposure, you know, through your business. Um, I want to ask you about the sacred bucket next. Um, you know, we've had different types of investors in here. We've had, you know, index investors who put all their equity money just in indexes. We've had factor investors. How do you think about that on, from your own perspective? I mean, do you, do you use factors? Do you, do you try to pick stocks? Do you just buy indexes? Can you just talk a little bit about that equity bucket? So... Um, I, I am hardwired since 1996 to believe that active management matters. And I do not say that as a it's better or worse than passive or indexing. 
I think both can work. I cannot help but look at the market, and all I've gotten ever since that year is increasing evidence that there is completely dynamic changes occurring, no matter what your belief system is. So I, I'm relying entirely on math. I look at the stock market as a tournament. Every month we rescore every single stock. There are a lot of different factors that are included. Um, my the results and the data that I've collected and continue to learn with humility that every single year has mounting evidence. I believe dividend growth is the best clue if you were going to ask me one factor that I've seen, not believe, seen works most consistently. I think it's the best clue of underlying change. Um, I don't you know, we could be born in the wrong century, the wrong country. I don't want to believe in any market. I don't think you should hang in there. I think people should get fired if that's their answer to questions about what's happening in the market. I think things are changing. Um, and I think the opportunities are early emerging changes if I had to look even more closely. And, and the best way I describe that is even the dividend guys that will look, and I think, frankly, lazy approach is finding big moats and hoping for the best, I think moats can spring a leak. And I think small little creeks could slowly start increasing in size and depth and turn in to a moat. So we are very actively looking at changes and assuming nothing. And even if the company is exactly the same from month to month, the reason we rescore it is that price changes. So therefore our opportunity and our entry point changes. So. Um, underlying all that active management, my, my biggest factor and, and probably the least, um, if, I had, if I had to say one thing that's made the biggest difference in my career is if you threw all that out the window and everything I think I've learned is employing cell disciplines under every decision in my life. Um, and I've learned that from the stock market. I owe the stock market that. You can make tons of mistakes that way. Um, that's my favorite factor, humility. Yeah, we, we met through a dividend article I had written and, you know, I've become a convert to your approach here. You know, I used to be the guy like, let's find the highest yielding stocks. And you, and you quickly realize that those companies all have some severe problems usually. And so the idea of using dividend growth, you get you get much better quality companies, you know, for the long term that way. I, I totally agree with you on that. Well, and, and more importantly, it's not what I like or what I've found. It's what people that are hiring me need. They would rather have, as I call it, mailbox math, they would rather have a 2% dividend yield that when they walk out the door for their Freedom Day might be 10% yield on investment, free cash flow, and then all of a sudden they never have to read an article or listen to a debate on safe withdrawal rate. They're doubling the safe withdrawal rate with zero principal return or hope for projected market returns. So that's the reason I'm loyal to it, um, not, not what I like, what they need. A lot of uh, guys like me have been talking about, like with equities, low expected returns, you know, and high valuations for a long time. Do you, do you care about that when you build your equity portfolio? Like, is there a level of valuation the stock market could get to where you would reduce your equity exposure? Or are you just looking at it as long term, no matter what happens? Well, it, it's impossible to argue that against that um, if you're owning or looking at the entire market, the index. When I, I run a very concentrated portfolio of 50 names. So I don't have to make a call on the overall market valuation. I can be super selective. Again, my bias in active management is rather, even than being a growth or a value guy, I've said, why can't it, you wait and be patient to have two sides of the same coin? Why can't you have better growth and underpay? You can if you own very few companies. Um, 
So I don't I don't need to make that call, and and I wouldn't be any good at it anyways, frankly. So I, I, I'm looking. The entry points, at, to your point, matters a lot because that dictates the math going forward. So it's impossible to ignore that, and that's why we agree on a lot of the value metrics. How do you think about rebalancing? So you know we've had other guests on where we were thinking about you know stock and bond buckets and rebalancing between them. You know you've got a little bit of a different framework here with buckets, like. Do you allow one of these to grow a lot or, or will you kind of bring it back? You know, if, you're, if your sacred goes up a lot and equities go up a lot, will you be putting money into your safe bucket from there? How do you think about that? It's a close cousin to the humility of cell disciplines that I think any overweight position should be a result of an output, not an input. Rather than me pounding the table and initiating an overweight position um, or much worse, doubling down and adding to a losing position, I think any overweight or out of balance position should be a result of runaway profits or extreme upside that was created. The reason I like to start with a balanced portfolio is I don't know which one of them is going to be the biggest winner. So if we do have an out of weight portfolio, it will be as a result of big winners with very tight sell disciplines underneath. You know, there's ways, that you can very easily disagree with the market and be overweight even before you have one of those winners. I mean, a recent example that you know folks have said was probably the least popular idea we've ever shared um, was that in the energy sector, which I almost got kicked out of Texas for not owning for 10 years, their free cash flow was almost triple the market weight. The revenues were almost triple the market weight. So I didn't have to make a call or believe in energy that should have been an overweight, not because of a decision I've made, but because the crowds had radically underweighted reality. So again, it's not a call, just sticking with the math. Yeah, and obviously the energy thing has certainly finally made its turn here after after many years of, you know, of energy struggling. Um, I want to ask you about the last two buckets because um, they're interesting as well. What do you think about in your speculative bucket? Like what types of things are in there? Ah, so after all the the safe um, and sacred are covered, um, I find and hire and am intrigued and curious to find experts that I just simply, while I think they might be good investments, it's really just rabbit holes that I'm as excited about learning. So whether it be private investments or recently, I think you know, I backed um, the most brilliant mind in crypto. Um, Jackson Wood that I know absolutely nothing about, but I've been very interested over the last three years and he's opened my eyes. That to me is a pure speculation for me. I don't think of it as a currency replacement or digital gold, or I'm not making a political call. I view that as venture capital. To me, it's a technology. I mean, he's opened my eyes to that. Private investments that I've wanted to learn more about um, and or naturally drawn to partial ownerships and anything from a sports team to um, the, one of one of the craziest and, and uh, <laughs> oddest investments I would have made, especially on the heels of what I just said with energy. I actually do believe in a cleaner climate. So I have a family that takes plastic out of the ocean and makes socks that I wanted to back. So having tiny slices that if they go to zero, although with the research and due diligence we've done, I don't think they will, but if they do, it's not going to change or affect my lifestyle by a penny. If they work, making a little bit more money would be great. Being really interested in learning more and meeting new smart people, that's where I get my greatest juice out of the venture private investment side, frankly. 
I think that's, you know, one thing a lot of people I've seen who have been successful with that have in common is, you know, one, they're interested in what they're investing in and two, they're passionate about what they're investing in. You know, because if you're just throwing money at venture capital companies, you don't really know what's going on. You don't really care about it. You know, that, that's not a recipe for success. So I, I think it's great the way you're doing it. I mean, it seems like it works better that way. Well, and, and a lot of points in that great question also that I learned, I watched. I mean, the fat layers of fees and fees on confusion and funds of funds and LP structures and illiquidity. I just, I, I'm, I'm so allergic to all of those. So I would much rather find direct investment opportunities. And I, you know, I, I grew up the son of a, a dirt poor farming family in Texas. So the idea of coming back and owning some more of that dirt as another speculative investment in farms, I, I believe in that. I know what I'm interested in. And I just love the juice of supporting people doing more good, really leaning into their craft as well, as opposed to your point of an investment product on a shelf. I, I want direct access. And, and your final one takes uh, venture capital a step further to adventure capital. And this is your Grindex concept you talked about before. I'm wondering, could you just talk about some examples of something that might fall under that? So it's, it's equally supremely selfish and unselfish, I hope, in this bucket. To me, the idea of working towards, whether it be a vacation home where all of a sudden saving becomes a lot more exciting. Um, taking trips to research that. That, that. that is adventure capital to me, not budgeting vacation money, but literally setting aside and investing in adventures makes all of this so much more fun. On the other side of adventure capital that I could be glad to light money on fire to never see again, that I'm much more passionate about going forward is I wanted to set up and be very intentional about a foundation to give more. Um, but again, I'm, the selfish part of me, I want to be involved. I, I, I want to see it. I want to believe in it. Um, so I just finished as a silly example that comes to mind because it just hit send last week. Um, I, I, I wrote a kid's book that in a little bit of a way changed my life. I hope I don't get choked up here. That... Um, that when I submitted it, it, it's a true story. And the publisher wanted to actually turn it into a movie. And I was like, well, th this is ridiculous. I don't want that. And that was the last thing. And you'll take control and we'll, we'll change it with we'll this, that. And like, well, first of all, I don't want a nickel. And furthermore, now that I realize how this works, I'm going to self-publish and invest heavily and give all of any revenue. I'll just bu I'll buy one copy. I, I know that. I write for an audience of one. To have a bucket to intentionally give, um, big on. I have five kids, um, so you know whether it be financial literacy or all sorts of things that some kids don't have. That's a big deal to me. So I want to be very intentional about that adventure capital, which along the way is an awful lot of fun for me. And there's a big faith component of that in my personal life that I also want to back. So it's a whole lot of. It's, that's my funnest portfolio, and that little slice needs to considerably get bigger. As I go down the road, we get one ticket in this life or I'm failing. So that grindexing needs to be a bigger and bigger portion of my allocation. Now, now I need to know the name of the kids book so I can go on Amazon and, uh, and buy it for my kids. Uh, what is it? It's not ready yet. It's coming out. It's in the final stage and I'll, I'll be glad to give you first copy. Well, we'll be your first buyer when it comes out. Um, just one more I want to ask about your portfolio before I hand it back to Justin. Um, one of the things we've talked to a lot of people about is, you know, all of us are seeing this high, these high levels of inflation for potentially, you know, for, for those of us that are younger, at least for the first time 
in our career. And I'm wondering when you think about your personal portfolio, does that impact it at all? Do you, do you make any changes to the, that pie chart we, we showed earlier in response to the fact that we might have above average inflation for a longer period here? Yeah, I think it's it's an enormous factor. And all of a sudden, it makes a lot of these questions real for folks and advisors for the first time in a generation. Um, a couple things. I, I think um, that investors, and I'm one of them, and I'll just use my own portfolio for this show as an example, their biggest question going forward will not be an allocation or finding the right market. It's going to be how to achieve rising streams of income, which we talked about earlier, has to outpace inflation, period. I mean, people didn't work their whole lives to then go on a commission schedule in retirement and be subject to fluctuation to see what they're going to get to live on. They have to have pay raises in retirement. Talked about the most consistent way throughout time to do that with dividend increases. Also on the fixed income side, rather than fight or argue about it or find out when it's peaking, or I would just say, I mean, the, the baseball analogy that comes to mind is, all right, if it's a tough outside pitch away, you know, rather than swing harder or try to hedge or avoid it, take it to the opposite field. And what I mean by that is, we talked about this earlier. And there shouldn't be any new surprises or new products or an advisor is doing this wrong based on market conditions. Like, okay, if I can get 4% on a tax-free muni that I get 1% a couple years ago, let's go ahead and buy that. Let, let, let's go ahead and take advantage of some of these dislocations. Um, I don't know if inflation is going to go higher or lower. I think there will be incredibly def deflationary forces that will benefit our equity side and capitalism and technology. But I have to also make sure that we're getting paid more on safe money. So I would rather take advantage of that. And in both cases, you combine that 3 and 4% and the rising, eventually double digits mailbox math of the rising dividends. I want that number to be a considerably higher than the rate of inflation and any safe withdrawal rate. And that, to me, is the ultimate in simplicity of the combined, as I call it, mailbox money. Um, it answers a lot more questions, and I don't have to trade or predict any macro events there. I can, I can, I can view them and hear them correctly as distractions that I believe they are. Can we go back to um, earlier in the conversation where you brought up the example of buying a dividend stock that's yielding two percent, and then you get the dividend growth, and then you know X number of years down the road, how that two percent yield turns into a ten percent yield? Can you just? sort of shake that out because that's a very, very powerful concept that I feel like it's lost in, I mean, there's dividend growth investors, the hardcore ones, sort of that's why they're investing in that. And that's why you're investing in that approach. But I think our listeners would benefit by understanding the details of that more and the, and the power of that. And, and it took me a long time to realize that these were the most consistent secrets hiding in plain sight um, and to really understand and, and, the, the, the simple to use the $2 dividend on a $100 stock, 2% dividend yield, and some might say that's a low yield. What if all that happens is the company increases dividends and all the analysis that we choose to do, that we talked about earlier of, of the red flags, Jack, with the, the high yields and all the analysis of free cash flow funding that behind that um, and the safety and the quality of that rising dividend consistently, if that dividend goes to $5 just through dividend increases, no matter what the stock price did afterwards, your yield on cost is now 5% on the original $100 that you invested. 
the fact that this happens to coincide typically with stocks that rise considerably, I'm not even counting on one penny of that profits when I do the mailbox math. I'm just looking on the yield on original cost to be able to plan and for somebody to say, you know what, if I could get five on its way to 10% yield on cost in a relatively short period of time, let's say somebody's retiring in a dozen years, I can all of a sudden nudge my family that might not have want anything to do with investments and speculation and allocations and say, back of the envelope, are we good there? If we can generate a safe rate of return along with a rising and using yield on cost as the most conservative back of the envelope math I've ever found and its simplicity I've found is the holy grail. Yeah, someone could take that approach and, you know, 10 to 15 years down the road, you're getting a 10 to 15% yield on cost. I mean, you're well covering your uh, 4% withdrawal rate and then you have a lot of money left over. And think about the, the, the Achilles heel that we all universally agree on in all these podcasts, except for yours. You just get right to the good stuff. This market psychology and behavioral finance. All of a sudden, if somebody's asking, because based on market conditions, do you want to sell something that's yielding you double digits, yield on cost? It's a whole different question. That's what sacred means to me. They'd have to rip it out of my hand. You mentioned you have um, a number of children. Do you, how do you, and this is kind of in the news with this um, student loan thing that's going on with the student loan forgiveness. And you, we can have a whole nother discussion around whether that's right or wrong and whether that's gonna cause inflation or, you know, and do the opposite of what they're actually trying to do um, in Washington. But um, what's your sort of view on saving for your kids um, college education. Do you have 529 plans set up? Do you uh, do you plan on helping them with their, their education or how do you kind of view that? I have a lot of views on that and it's one of the things I do most differently. Um, as we talked about pre-show, one of the questions, I wouldn't recommend everybody do this, but I actually sit at the table with my kids and we build the accounts together at a very early age and it could be a couple hundred dollars. More because I care about them hearing and listening and us talking about even just any whiff of capitalism and how this all works than I care about the returns. I personally don't have any 529s. They didn't have any wealthy grandparents, which is the great use of 529s. If I own a tax-free bond and a stock in my own account, rather than put it in their name, I don't count on any aid or scholarships, but I find that simple transparency and control if we end up cash flowing and paying for college i want the savings but i want then i can nickname the account so when they see the statements that's my account dad right and it started a little bit and i can contribute more and we're going to go mow some yards and we're going to go work and we're going to both contribute um, but that that i have found with five kids is the least linear plan and everybody who says they know i mean i'll use myself as an example I got a kid in fourth grade who costs more than my college kid. So where's the elementary school? <laughs> and and he's, I just happen to be blessed. And we go to a private school that costs a lot of money. And I have a smart daughter who got an academic scholarship. So I'm glad that I kept things fluid, wanted to cash flow. And by the way, cash flow, not just for privilege, if I didn't have the, if I couldn't afford to send one of my kids to a certain college, I would see nothing wrong in the absolutely nothing wrong with sitting down having skin in the game honey let's go get a job in college like i did um, let's learn about how this works we'll do it together rather than taking out just gobs and worrying about and putting you know college funding ahead of your own plan at an early age and obsessing about it and worrying about it let's do it as we go let's do it together and i think some of the lessons learned on even the smallest of accounts without layers and funds 
can actually be more valuable for the kids than the college savings we're working towards. I, I hope there's no, well, I guess there are some professors that are listening to this because you guys are smart. But I, I, I really think some of those separate table talks, I'll put those up against a few MBAs. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I mean, I think I could probably do that more with, with my girls. It's, it's not a lot of those conversations. You know, I started small investment accounts for them when they were younger and I, you know, bought Disney and like stocks that I thought we could talk about. And, you know, I've done very little of that. So I think I need to get on. And they're at the age where I think they, you know, they would start understanding that stuff. So I think that's great. Hey, and, and the, the, the cool dividend of that is they might accidentally trip you down a rabbit hole that keeps us young and smart. There's a couple of industries in there that I knew nothing about and I use it as a great excuse to learn. So my kids can be some of the best analysts. Um, and that, that's been fun and humbling also. It's a constant thing. I'm just wait. I'm, I'm just waiting for my kids to say, "See, we own Disney now. Let's go to Disney." That's right. No, we can't afford that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so, when you think about sort of, I mean, you're you're a very humble, honest guy. So, I'm curious what you're going to say to this. When you think about the biggest mistake that you've made with your portfolio, what would you say that? You know, I might. We were talking about our mutual friend Jack Schwager before the show. I might have to give his book credit couple decades ago of framing this and I've never forgotten it and I've been unbelievably fortunate to live it out if you view any loss as a tuition payment and of course he was talking about in the college of trading in the world of then is it a loss so all I've done not to avoid the question because I've had plenty none stand out not because I'm smart but because I had tight sell disciplines under every one of them um, and that has made the biggest difference. Um, and learning and then building and then tweaking the playbook as a result, which is makes it into a tuition payment, um, that's, and I've, I've tried to apply it in every area of my life. Um, you know, I have stop losses on my blue jeans. I, I don't go buy a bigger pair. I, I do a couple sit-ups and, and stop eating. Um, I've found the disciplines unlock. And, and I really, not to sound, uh, I mean, I, the, the, the greedy part of cell disciplines is what I've found as a portfolio manager most tangibly, but also as a, as a human being with a little bit of peace of mind from knowing that those losses won't be big. It literally reshapes your lens in seeing new opportunities in a whole different light. And, and that's what the biggest aha moment from cell disciplines have been for me. Something, something you said earlier reminded me of something that Jack said and Jack Schwager said in the podcast that we did with him. He, um, you said, you know, you get up like it's your first day on the job every day, something along those lines. Um, that's what you said a few minutes ago. I have been super, super, super lucky and let's not make any mistake. I've also come to learn how much a factor luck is. <laughs> in most lives listening to this podcast. So let's own that and let's lean into it and appreciate more and expect less. But I, you're right, I've never owned an alarm clock. I, 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 I am lucky. I love this craft. I am not very good at anything else, so I don't have a whole lot of distractions. And I lean into the few loves of my family. Um, and and I, I don't know how to describe that. It's not something I have to work on. I, I am lucky in that way. And then the wind and, and, and the sails of a whole bunch of families counting on you lights me on fire. I mean, most people wouldn't, and, and 
let's face it, this industry is very different. Most people wouldn't want to go to bed with that kind of risk. It lifts me up. It's, it's not necessarily one for one, but what he said about Paul Tudor Jones was, and it kind of taught, he said that every day, every trading day for Paul Tudor Jones was a day where he would look and ask, if you're holding the stock, would I buy it today? Would I, would I still be buying this new? I mean, he was, he was a great trader, so he had you know, very short-term time periods. But this idea that every day you're waking up, you're evaluating your hold, in his case, but you know, you're sort of looking at your job like, I want to do the best I can, and this is a, a, a new day, and I'm going to give it my all. I think that that's, that's great stuff. Well, I, I actually think that's one of the best disciplines anybody, no matter how they do anything. I could not agree with that more. And when you run a separately managed account or an ETF where it's fully transparent, I sh those are on display every day. If I'm not willing to buy it right here, right now, it should be a sell. Um, I think that's a great and very important point. And to your, uh, to your point on uh, luck too, you know, I've obviously been incredibly lucky in my career too, but one of the things I, I learned that I think is really important with respect to luck is, I don't know if you listened to when Patrick O'Shaughnessy had uh, Jason Zweig on his podcast, it was one of the first ones he ever did. And they talked about this idea of the difference between luck and serendipity. And like the idea being serendipity is when you put yourself in a position where luck can benefit you, you know, you're more likely to get luck. And you know, that, that's one of the things I've learned a lot in my career is, you know, I'm not going to get lucky sitting in the chair in the corner in my house. Like I'm going to get lucky by going out and doing things like you're doing, you know, and then luck will find you, you know, when, when you're out there putting yourself out there. I think increasingly that's one of my favorite supper table talks. I couldn't agree more. And by the way, Jason is on my Mount Rushmore of folks in this industry um, since I started and before tremendous and consistent and beautifully bright and humble mind. Um, I call it incredible Hulk and the H U L K stands for heads up luck and karma. It ain't in the phone head down. You can engineer and increase your surface area of luck. I try to tell my kids, but and, and back combining those last two great points and questions. I mean, this is not something either a portfolio manager or a planner should set out a map and why I don't have a goal. This is all a guided evolving playbook where literally the surface underneath any of our plans is changing every day. So it is all dynamic. Uh, as we come to an end here, I wanted to ask you what I guess people who listen to these regularly will refer to as the Jack Sailboat question. But it goes back to an idea you talked about earlier, which is this idea that a lot of great investments are not investments that necessarily do well monetarily. And, you know, I've talked on the podcast a lot about how I have a racing sailboat and how a racing sailboat is, is a horrendous investment from a financial perspective. But how when I can go out with my friends on Wednesday night and have a beer and race around, you know, it, it's really created a lot of benefits in my life. And, and I'm wondering if you have anything like that in your life that might not be the greatest financial investment, but that you've gotten a lot of benefit from. Well, we've talked about several of them already um, in, in the speculative and adventure capital bucket that if they go to zero, I've gotten more joy out of than anything. And I'm a sucker for more and more of those. I mean, you could walk around anywhere in my house. I, I mean, it could be the little tiny farm that I built in my backyard because one of my kids was interested. And I think we're averaging about a $93 cost basis tomato. Um, that's not a tremendous investment, but tremendously fulfilling. Um, to me, outside of this work that I love, it's I keep things real simple too. I give every other ounce to my family. So the way I measure success, and I guess it has been an extraordinary investment on time and money I could have made, I guess, that I forego, but I wanted to be there for all of them. I, I've, I, I coach them. 
Um, when you go five kids and you're coaching that many teams, that's a tremendous investment of time and lost money that I don't look back on and blink and miss for a second um, that has been very meaningful to me. And we're all time billionaires. It's just a matter of how we allocate that. And that's probably the better question than my investment portfolio, because I think it lasts longer in the memory banks of others, as we talked about, which is I've learned is the most important um, and, and will outlast all of us. So we had a little twist on you. You answered our standard closing question the first time, but the second time around is if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor about how you've built your personal portfolio, what would that be? Deeply informed simplicity in whatever way that means to you. Um, if you can start eliminating, not adding pages to a playbook. Most folks, the more they save, the more successful they get, the more stuff they end up owning. And keep it simple as that, and, and I'm sorry to go out of order, that's just how I like to do things. We turn things upside down. That simple pie chart, I really do keep it that simple. And then sell the spoons under everything, that would be that would be it for me. That's what I've learned and, and, and has made my career. Thank you, Ryan. If people want to get in touch with you, um, where can they go to find out more? Well, you know, we met each other, I think, on, on Twitter, and I love our – I don't have a negative experience there. I guess I don't try hard enough, but there's a collection of brilliant, wonderful friends that we have in common um, on Twitter. The, our website is Freedom Day Solutions. Dot com where you can see some of those Grindexers live and in living color. We have more of that stuff than any investment stuff because that's what matters the most. Um, Thank you very much, Ryan. We really appreciate that. And I, I was delighted to be here. It's an honor. And I really love what and how you're going and taking this investment discussion, making it not one-dimensional and, and going deep in, in two and three dimensions and cutting stuff out and lifting it up. I think people benefit. I know I'm one of them. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.